America Mind is a thought-provoking introspective of what the future would look like in a post-white supremacist society. Sasha Banks' poetry captivates while it initiates the decolonization of the reader's minds to consider a life where Black lives thrive. On this episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast, we talk to Banks about her collections of poems, how she did a deep dive into the world of slam poetry, and which famous young adult author is the only one who knows the ingredients to her coveted peach cobbler. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Stay with us as we talk to poet Sasha Banks about her book, America Mine. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everybody. Hello, welcome back. Welcome back to this very special edition of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. This is a part of our anniversary month series. Yes. We are one. We are one year old. I did a shimmy. You did a shimmy, (laughs) a shimmy and a shake. (laughs) A birthday shimmy through your birthday dance. Mm. Yes. So we we turned one uh, this month and uh, we just want to say thank you for being on this journey with us. Throughout this past year, we have had um, such an awesome time speaking to so many different wonderful writers on yeah. all different types of topics, and they just keep coming, and April is full of them. Yes, we're starting with the big guns. <laughs> yes, the big guns, and um, if you if you haven't listened to um, our last episode that was with the uh amazing new writer on the um on the break of day her name is donnie walton and um she just released the final revival of opal and nev which is our book of the month pick we hope that you will you know be along on that ride this month but today today Today, we have the one and the only miss sasha banks we are so happy to have her here with yeah. us today, um, she is a poet that we stalked <laughs> since January. We saw her on a on um, a live during one of uh, Mateo Escarapor's, uh book talks uh, during his debut of Black Buck, and she read her poetry, and we instantly looked at each other and we like, we have to get her on the show. Yes, and I was shook. It. We did it. She's here. She's We've been here. waiting for it. <laughs> and to start National Poetry Month. Yes. it's April. It's April. And she's about to give us the word. So everyone put your hands together and welcome to the stage, Miss <laughs> Sasha Banks. Woo! Hello. Hello. Thank you guys so much for having me. And it's so funny. Um, I had a friend reach out to me and was like, hey, do you want to do like a 30 minutes of writing for 30 days thing. And I was like, oh yeah, that's cute. But then I realized that it was actually like Napo Rimo. And I was like, oh yeah, that, right. Got it. Let's do it. But I totally forgot. Cause I don't remember doing that last year. We were all just like pandemic. What, what's happening? So I, did, alive. Yes. I was like, what? Uh, I was like, oh, 30 days, 30 po- Okay, That's cute. I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Um, but I can start off with a piece. Is that okay? I have two, but I can do one now and one later, however you want to. Yeah, go ahead. You can we read can... your whole book and I'll just sit here. That can be the show. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read the the um, the title piece of uh, from the book called America Mine. Um, okay, so this is a, this is a shorter one. The spit upon this country's flag is mine, and I do not weep at it. Consider the twisted shape of grief about the mouth upon learning the beast under the bed has always been your country. Careful, citizen. This nation will name you daughter while its tongue sucks the muscle from every dark body you have loved to the edge of this vanished second. I let the rage be like water this time. 
drinking and drinking until my darkness marries my eyes to blindness and I am led by the ghosts, still awake in the soil, still thirsty from below. The fear is under my heel now. There are multitudes in my third rib and we are not asking anymore. Do you see us now? This is the last kindness. We will have your sweat and dress you in your own curses, O oh country. What I mean to say is all the living after this will be the vengeance. Girl. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> your book. Uh, this is the book. Your book. <laughs> is beautiful it is beautiful it is thank you a piece of art and and that uh your title piece america mine shook me to my core um as well as the rest of every single poem that is in this book and uh thank you for for reading that uh for us so we are going to just ask our first question sure um in america mine you speak about the anger and grief that has burdened black people it is exhausting to talk about trauma and mm -hmm. death all of the time. Yeah. And this has been where we've been living, especially yes. within like the last seven years. Heavy, heavy. Right. Um, why did you choose to center your book around the subject of grief as well as uh, what life can look like post-white supremacy? You know what? It wasn't even really a conscious decision. Um, when I set out to write a full collection of poetry, I thought that I didn't really know how to do it. Me and another poet named Ariana Brown, who is a phenomenal poet. Both of our books actually came out last year. Um, but we both were like, in 2014, 2015, we were like, let's write books. And so we, we thought that the way to do that is like outlines and Google Docs and all this stuff. But what ended up happening was you know, there were things internally that were just asking to be written. And over the course of just living every day, 2014 to 2015 was an incredibly tumultuous time. Mm -hmm. um, if people remember, this is a time frame when Michael Brown had been murdered and then Darren Wilson was not indicted for that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's just where I was, rage and grief were where I was living, but I didn't know that until the things were asking to be written. So that's just what was coming out. And I think there came this place where I was like, you know what? I want to, like, I feel like racial institutions, in every institution, it invests on our life and our death, particularly on our death for its own prosperity. And what I thought was, I want to do the inverse. And like, I want to invest in white supremacy's death. I want to invest in that. I want to, I want to suppose that. I want to conjure that. And the same way that white supremacy and all of these white supremacist institutions sort of um, bank on, you know, our non-survival yes. um, or just our struggle and our trauma, I want to invest on the counter or the same for them, for that, for that construct. And so that became like, the thing became like the book sort of started taking this like turn. Mm. And I started the book before I entered an MFA program at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. Um, and then once I graduated, like the book was pretty much done, but I worked on the book really from the, from the time I started writing the first poem to the time that actually the book actually came out was about six years. Um, and it just, it was taking a lot of turns. And every time I would go to critiques, my professors and my cohort would always be like, just let it happen. And I'm like, but that's hard. It feels hard. Like, I don't know where it's going, but that was the turn, right? Was the whole um, like counter conjure is, mm -hmm. is sort of what we, the word that we, the term that we used in, in our critiques all the time. So that, that, that's to answer your question. That's really how those things became the centralized kind of themes of the two centralizing themes of the book. You definitely like took us through a journey on yeah. what life could look like when that topples <laughs> in America. Um, right. Yeah, I really, I really like that concept. Um, and it felt like it was, you know, a, you gave us permission to feel 
that rage and you know you were very open writing writing about it and then the access for black and brown people to feel the same way and it's a reminder their experiences are valid and are true and mm -hmm. you know it's to me it was every time i would read one poem i have to pause and like put it down for a minute and mm -hmm. then really like think about it and then come back to it so i enjoyed the journey it was lovely i'll repeat it multiple times <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you for reading yeah i think like the thing that became so upsetting for me <laughs> just like in writing these poems and sort of like making myself angrier and angrier was the fact that I know that um, there were people who were not going to listen to these poems. Because frankly, I mean, I'd been to shows reading this as a manuscript, reading pieces of this in, you know, parts of the country where people would literally stand up and walk out of the room in the middle of me reading the piece because they didn't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. Um and they also didn't want to see like someone be angry on stage, you know, vulnerable is okay, but not vulnerable, vulnerably angry. Mm -hmm. Right. That was unacceptable. And so I think, you know, I, I, I mean, this book has really created a lot of um, object lessons <laughs> for me, for me. And then, you know, for, I think the people who've sort of dealt with it on the, on the other side of my interactions with people. I mean, there are plenty of pieces in the book that people didn't want to publish because they felt like they were a bit much mm -hmm. um, and wanted me to revise certain things or whatever the case may have been um, to where the poem, revising the poem down to kind of like a shell of itself to where all of the, all of the things that made the poem, the poem were just not even there anymore. It was totally unrecognizable. So I'm like, well, this is exactly what I'm talking about though. Yeah. So you're not even reading the piece, right? Like you're mm -hmm. not, because if you were, you would realize that your, your first inclination is to do the very thing that I'm trying to name. Yes. The thing that like is enraging, the thing that is like harming people in my community and other communities, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I think the book is really like, it's a lot and it was it was kind of wild to to see it in one like finished I keep looking at it it was it was kind of weird to see it in like one big you know wrapped up with a bow you know what I'm saying yeah I'm like, wow like me and these poems have been on a ride a very American ride <laughs> first of all to those people haters gonna hate how dare you um you know <laughs> But um, so like you were experiencing because I think I was listening to one of your um, one of the like talks that you were doing and you said like, you know, you did it one in Boston and you were like, yeah, Boston. And you, you rolled your eyes <laughs> and, <laughs> and you were and but I was like, how how would that make me feel if I was doing that? And mm -hmm. I was like, how much confidence like how were you able to establish that confidence and claiming your own space as a poet, as a person, you know, as a black, as a black woman, how were you able to come out from that? And like, you know, just the learnings from that, I feel like it's really great. I think I really had to decide that if this was what I was going to not only allow to come out on the page, but I was also going to stand on stages and read these things to people who's, I don't know where their allegiances fall. I don't know what they feel about anything or, or, or anything like that. If I was going to do that, I couldn't also abandon the work. Mm -hmm. And in the moment of reading the poems, particularly at this particular show in Boston, there was a time when I, I there were like two things happening, right? Like I started to get emotional because I was like, but you all are the ones who need to hear this. The people yes. who are still here are, are the, pe I'm preaching to the choir. The, the seven of you that are walking out of the room right now are the people who need to hear this, but I'm also not going to beg you to mm. hear, to hear it. Right. And I started to get teary eyed because I felt really vulnerable in that moment. I felt like I did something wrong. But then there was this like larger part of myself that was like, no, okay, we're staying on the stage. We're standing by the work because the work is not just a piece of art. The work is a thing that I'm saying from the intersections that I exist between. And those are real things. Those are valid things. And if these people can't stand in the room with it, then that says less about me and more about them. Yes. And no matter where I go, I have to allow the work to um, 
to sort of exist with its own integrity. I can't, I can't bend that for um, anybody as even, even if it makes me feel uncomfortable. Cause after I got off stage, I felt very unsafe. People who were very kind to me when I got there for the show and everything would not make eye contact with me or they would. And it was not kind of, like, it felt unkind. It felt aggressive. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, but my thing was, you know, I'm not going to just write the thing and hope that somebody reads it. I'm going to stand by the thing and say it into a crowd of people um, because that's that's what the work is asking me to do. So I'm glad that you said that because that um, that makes me want to ask you when you are writing your your work mm-hmm. because I I know that you've done. Um, some activism especially after michael brown uh was was murdered um when you are writing your poetry do you see poetry and activism two things that you bring together or do you see them as one and the same i feel like there are two things that i'm bringing together because i know that poetry isn't necessarily going to make a racist person stop being racist Right. But I think that poetry is really important for the internal lives of people who do participate in activism as this other thing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it's it's important. Like, it's a thing that people can synthesize their feelings or think differently about something that the activism is the thing that you can, like, apply that understanding or that shift or that whatever too. So I feel like there are two things that I'm sort of bringing together um, because in the in the face of feeling the things that you're feeling when you're participating in something, um, when, you, when you're doing something in the community, when you're serving your community in one way or another in terms of activism, you know, you need those moments where you're reading something that affirms to you, it's okay for me to be angry. It's okay for me to be enraged. It's okay for me to be violent. You know, mm-hmm. you need something to feed that part of you and then you can go out and do the thing that you that you feel you need to do in service to your community. So it's therapy and essentially yep. it's helping yeah. you work out all of those feelings that you feel are like uh, in, in conflict to what everyone's saying that you should be. And this yes. is your poetry telling you like, nah, girl, this is where you need to stand. Hold firm and let's go. Mm-hmm. Let's go do the hard work. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, you need something to like come back to, you know, when you come away from a demonstration or whatever the thing is, right? Like you need something to come to come back to to feed yourself and to affirm what you're doing and and what you believe to like ground yourself because it's easy to go out there and be like, this person got in my face and they said this to me and, and I just didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to, you know what I mean? Like how to negotiate the feelings that you feel or whatever. I, I personally find a lot of comfort in reading other people's poetry in the, in like in hindsight or in retrospect, as I'm reflecting on something that has already taken place. I'm like, okay, so this is what mahogany brown said about that okay like <laughs> you know what i mean like i feel like i'm in community right like yes. i feel like okay like candace elo is already okay great okay great this <laughs> already said this okay like i'm not alone right yeah, you're not um, crazy right mm-hmm. you need you need that you need that to ground yourself because that just like having p- other people's poetry around you um or even writing your own sometimes is just a chance to sit with what you're feeling because mm-hmm. You know, this stuff's never going to go away. Right. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like the work is always going to be there to do in terms of activism. It's always going to be there, but you have to preserve yourself. And I just find that poetry is one tool to do that. Yeah. And like in the stages of grief, anger comes before acceptance and, you know, and doing something. So you have to go through mm-hmm. it as a person in order for yeah. you to come out better. Mm-hmm. So it's okay, but we're always told that we're not allowed to be angry cuz we see, we're seen as violent, we're seen as like not aggressive, people. hostile, yes. right? Like all those things, mm-hmm. right? Like you know, combative. Every combative. word that can deflect the core, like the like it, every word that can that can sort of move remove someone away from asking, but why? Yeah. I wonder why that person's so upset. Let me think about that. Let me do my Googles. Let me just work backwards and maybe I can 
prevent myself from asking stupid questions so that I can, I'm coming with some context here, but no one's going to, no one wants to do that because that is accountability. So yeah, that's a lot of hard work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you consider this particular piece of work that you've written within the scope of the definition? Do you think it's within the definition of Afrofuturism for you? You know what? It's so wild because I was reading in the early stages of writing this book, I was reading Octavia Butler, Mm -hmm. but I never thought that that's what I was doing Um, because her work is so like directly tied to what we could categorize as Mm -hmm. sci-fi. So when I thought about Afrofuturism, like I wasn't thinking about poetry because I hadn't heard of that or seen that. And I got to MFA and people were using words like speculative. And I'm like, well, what's, what's that? I don't know what that is. Big words. <laughs> right. I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, yeah, like I, 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 like, I like the, the speculative, you know, themes that you have. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? What does that word mean? Um, and so I think I would say yes, um, because it, it's, it's just, it's the utilization of my black imagination. Mm-hmm. So just from that very simple sort of de- definition, I would say yes. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. Cause I, I'm first to admit, I did not grow up in this country. I'm an immigrant. I'm from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So I had to relearn, you know, I, I knew about the colonization in my country and, you know, right. the, the strife that my people also went through and, you know, in my young mind before, I was like, oh, I did not know that this hap- this happened to here. Like, because, you know, when you are in a third world country and you look at America, you look at it like as this, like, gold. That's something that you can't reach it's or touch. It's the thing that America wants you to think about it. Exactly. And then right. when I got here, I learned, I'm like, this is all bullshit. Like, you, right. just, you just call <laughs> yourselves, like, a first world country, but you have also third world problems. Like, you're not very far yeah. away from us. We're just right. poor. Right, right. <laughs> we we just poor. You got money. That's that's the only difference. <laughs> yeah, that's all. Yeah. So I was like, I I was I was amazed. So I you know I, to me this is kind of like an educational learning process for me. So I'm like, mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of it's a lot of learning. It's a lot of you know like self realizations and stuff. And I was just like, it's it's a really it's a really good journey for me to to read all of this because I'm like I can identify in some of them and also like in my younger days I can identify it's like oh yeah I was a perpetrator of that of that feeling or of that act which I was right. not which I'm not afraid to tell you know because I didn't yeah. know any better but yeah but now that you know we have we have grown <laughs> and we have read more things we are we are better <laughs> a little more life right we meet other people whose lives look different than ours and we go oh yeah really all takes right like it's so interesting like I've been having this or really just sort of being a student of this conversation around colorism and Mm. me and a friend of mine were talking about how basically like all darker skinned people are asking lighter skinned people to do is just say, Hey, there's this button in the room of who I am and it could hurt you. And I'm going to do everything in my power to just not touch it. Yes. That's all. Yeah. That's all I'm asking. That's all you're asking. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm going to say is I'm going to do my best not to hurt, not to touch that thing. I know who put it in the room. It wasn't me. Right. But all I'm saying is, I will do my damnedest not to touch that and harm you because I know what it can do to you. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like it's it's that kind of like understanding that we're asking people who are in places of power to do all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're like, look, white supremacy has done a number on the entire globe, okay? Yes. Colonization has harmed people just in, in innumerable ways in in ways that we can't even begin to describe mm-hmm. um but what we're asking you to do is to stop that's i don't that's know what is hard about that i know that it will cost you something but the thing is like we if we all benefit from it you will benefit from it right yeah. 
but some people don't. Yep. They're like, no, but how can that be? The math isn't nothing. How, how, how? Break it down for me. And so, you know, people become very rigid. Yes. Happy birthday to your book. Yes. By the way. Thank you. Is it that time a already? April 24th. Oh, that's right. <laughs> wow. You guys are so much more on top of this than I am. We, we I would have we tried. Been like, oh, yeah, the book came out sometime last year. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so it's also your birthday. Yay. It's all our birthdays. <laughs> Woo-hoo, we're having a party. Um, so your book has been out uh, for a year now. And uh, from when you started writing your book up until now, has your vision of America changed since writing um, This American Mind? Or uh, or has it been for the better and worse? I feel like <laughs> my perspective about where I am is the same. Um, I feel that it's the same. I feel like I would double down on some of the things that I've said. I feel like I, I think I, I've even gotten a little more um, direct about the things that I would like to say about where I live. Um, where I feel like in the book, it was like, ah, you know, I want to say that thing, but let me just make it pretty. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I feel like now uh, I don't feel that I really have uh, any allegiance to this place to protect anything about its identity for me to make it kinder, Mm. you know? So yeah, I would say, I would say it's the same and then maybe like up a notch Mm -hmm. or just less um, um, diplomatic about it. Nothing wrong with that. We need to, it's 2021. We need to be more direct in what we want to say to people. We don't yeah, have time. True. No, we don't. We don't have time. And as if right. anything we've we've learned from this past year, we definitely don't have time because if we don't get killed by white supremacy, then other things are out in the world that's going to kill us. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like, which one will it be? Will it be us or will it be the thing that we can easily prevent, um, which is us? <laughs> you know, like, it, it goes, everything is, is a circle. It all encompasses all the stuff. That's great. Um, so let's talk about the forms of the poetry in your book, which is very okay. <laughs> so from let's start with like from the lowercase America to changing um, how America is spelled throughout the book. And along with what was the other significance of the spelling that you wanted to convey to our readers when you mm-hmm. did that intentionally. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about um, the presidential orders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, that whole function. Okay, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to take every opportunity to be as petty as I possibly could. <laughs> We're living for it. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to say that that was, like, super being super artsy or whatever. I was just like, how many ways can I just screw up all these presidents' names? How many ways can I, you know, like, in the same way that, like, that happens to, you know, people who don't have these conventional white-sounding names. Um, you know, our names are often misspelled, mispronounced. Right, exactly. Every every way, every way that they can be butchered, no matter how many letters there are, no matter how obvious it sounds um, or not, you know. And so it was really just um, riffing on that for a long time. And I had a really wonderful um, advisor at Pratt named Mandy Obadike, who is a writer and artist as well. But she was like, "Do more." You know, she was like, don't be afraid, put some more, do some more, do it again. She was like, make like 10 of these, make like 20, do as many as you can. So you can't think of how many ways to, to like screw it up anymore. Um, and so I did. But then as I was doing it more, I started thinking about like what was really happening visually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got excited about like sort of demonstrate like like having a way to figure out how to like demonstrate the collapse like Mm -hmm. the like there's a lot of destruction in the first half of the book Mm -hmm. so I was like well this is just more of that or this is another opportunity to do more of that so I can all I can like misspell these things but I also start taking letters out um 
or if I take letters out, I can also like rearrange them the way that like somebody would if they were vandalizing a street sign, right? Mm-hmm. Like if they wanted to take the, you know, the C and the L out of the word class and make the word ass and how that's like really cheeky, right? I wanted to sort of do the same thing with the president's names. Um, <clears throat> but also it, as I was in the process of doing that, because it was like literally going through these lists of the president's names like over and over and over again. That's why there's all these different iterations because then I would be working on one and be like, oh, I could do this. So I would finish that and then move on to another iteration and be like, oh, and I could also like fuck it up this way. (laughs) Um, And so what it really became was like an opportunity to also demonstrate that like, we don't have to be afraid to not revere these founding fathers and not revere these sort of origin stories of the United States that sort of um, contribute to that like propagandist kind of like advertising for the United States, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't have to be afraid to bring those things down from their pedestal and actually critique them or just talk shit about them, right? Yeah. Because we can't. <laughs> so it was just a lot of playfulness, but like petty playfulness, you know what I mean? <laughs> We were here yeah. for it. Um, when, Thank you. And and when when reading it, you know, as as readers go through uh, through your book, um, and they come upon that section, and there's another section um, called American History Suite. Um, mm-hmm. What we are reading here is for me is how I as I chose to to look at it is that it wasn't just poetry it wasn't just literature but it was also this piece of art that is that we can that we can have in our homes right and it instantly put me in the mind of uh Cara Walker like her art is amazing and I'm so glad that I can actually say that I actually seen a piece here in Orlando um and didn't yeah. even know that it existed just was on a field trip I used to be a, a high school librarian and there is a fr- the only free museum um, in I think within the state of Florida um, that has like major masterpieces and walking mm-hmm. around the museum and there was one of her pieces right there and I instantly cried and it I when reading your book that's where it took me to looking at one of her, her wow. paintings. Wow, um, wow. So, that, that really means a lot. Thank you very much. You're very I welcome. love her so much <laughs> and I just... I actually was um, really immersed in a lot of her artwork at the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Always been a fan. Um, but at the time I was like, it, she just was sort of in the catalog of like all the art that I was sort of absorbing at the time. So it means a lot for you to say that. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you for writing it. And which then leads me to the question, like, I just want to know, like, how did poetry itself find you? Um, yeah, that's so wild and hard to answer because I've, I've always written as a kid. I would write short stories on the playground um, instead of playing. I would just, like, have my, like, notepad and be like, and then the man said, and then the <laughs> this. <laughs> I would be like, you know, um, doing my thing. But then when I got to, I would say I really started taking poetry seriously when I was in my early, early, early 20s, um, when Tumblr was like the thing. Mm. And I was like, oh, what's this? Because I had just, I was like at the end of my undergraduate um, career and was, had like, I had I had very much been dedicated to like theater and music and piano. That's what I was studying earlier on in my graduate career, or in my undergraduate career. But then um, I transferred schools. They didn't have any kind of programs like that, mm-hmm. and so I had to choose a major that was available, and I chose English, mm-hmm. um, and ended up getting like a scholarship for my writing. And I was just like, huh, what's well, that's cool, I guess, you know, whatever. Um, And I had a lot of English professors who were just like, you know, you have a lot of like really interesting, like, you know, you make a lot of interesting writerly choices. And I don't know what they're talking about because I'm really not, it's not that deep for me. I'm just like, well, I just write my stories and I just do my things. But what was happening was like, 
things were becoming more lyrical mm. um, than, than what I was writing. And so it started to make this natural sort of progression into poetry because now I'm reading like the people that I follow, they're writing poetry. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, like this is really beautiful. I, like, I love what they're doing with language, but never seeing the like that in my own things that I was writing. Cause in my mind, it was just little doodles and doodads and assignments for class. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I graduated, I learned about a spoken word community here in North Texas that was run by a woman named Natasha Carrizosa, who's a really wonderful writer as well. She had a an open mic night that happened like every like third Wednesday or something of the month at this like Jamaican restaurant. <laughs> and I was just like, I want to, I might want to do that too. And so I just sort of got absorbed into the community and um, I got introduced to this really wonderful writer who's no longer with us. Her name is Giselle Robinson, um, who used to host these Monday night rights. And she would have this just massive horde of writers, local writers in the community who were all poets who would just come to her house and like write for hours to like one prompt. Mm. And that would just really change the course of my life and my interests. And suddenly it was all about poems, 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 learning as much as I could, as fast as I could. Um, And that's when I really sort of started to make a departure from writing stories into writing poems because I found something really like artful about that. Mm. Like I used to say, if I wasn't if I, if I wasn't like a writer and an educator, I would love to be a sculptor. I just mm-hmm. felt like I wanted to make visual things. Um, and I felt like poems were a way for me to sort of do two things at one time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and make images because that's that felt really important to me. So it just really felt like a, this natural progression from, you know, stories, storytelling, and then like storytelling, but also like with pictures you know? Um, and that just became my like ultra jam. And that's kind of where I landed. I wasn't even going to go to an MFA until Mm. Mahogany Brown was like, if you don't apply to this master's program, I'm going to call your mother. And I was like, (laughs) you don't have to do that. (laughs) I will fill out the application today. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, because I wasn't really sure what that was going to do for me or, you know, what that was supposed to mean. Um, if it was going to, if it, if it meant anything, but I, I really appreciate, um, my time there because I had moved away from like the slam community and that, I think that sort of, um, time was so focused that it really helped me to develop a real sense of myself as a poet specifically. So that felt like that's a really rambly, <laughs> no, no because I have a lot question. of questions from what you just said. Sure, sure. And and, and one being, um, you mentioned slam poetry. So, for someone who kind of just fell into poetry and in just in general, like, how did you find yourself in the sound in the slam world? Um, yeah, the slam experience was really accelerated for me. Um, I didn't even really know what I was walking into. I just wanted to share my poems. Mm. To this day, I don't know what score creep is. I don't know what, like, I don't know how to count. I don't know how to do any of that. I just wanted to share my poem. I never won a slam. I, I think I won, like, a couple of, like, literary slams mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that were mostly about, like, the artfulness of the piece uh, <laughs> that you were putting up. But I just never, I, I didn't really understand any of that. I was just like, wow, there was, there was this huge community of all these different people from all these different locations. There are poets from Oakland, poets from San Francisco, and poets from other parts of the Bay, poets from Houston, poets from New Orleans, and none of them were ever the same. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but they became my community because it's just it was just this massive network of writers. And so I was like really learning what was possible on the page, what people were doing with their poems out in the world when they weren't performing, teaching artistry, like like uh, being a teaching artist. I learned how to do that, how to create workshops, how to do all these things. So it was this really accelerated time in my life where I became introduced to slam and like performance 
well, what people, what some people will call performance poetry, but just people performing poetry from watching the Strivers Row on Tumblr. Mm -hmm. Once again, it was just one summer of me just being like, wow, what are these people doing out in the world? That's so cool. (laughs) I would love to do that, but I don't know how to do that. I live in Texas. Nobody does anything. I'm just going to do my thing. And then like maybe a year later being totally inducted into like just this huge like thing. So that was from like the end of 2012, 2013 to, I think I left the community like in 2015. So it was like this quick, quick ride, you know, Mm -hmm. but I learned so much because there's, there was so much to learn there. I mean, there were a lot of places where it was a very toxic environment. So the thing sort of ended up collapsing in on itself, but, but there are a lot of youth poets who still slam. There's a lot of programs for like, you know, young writers um, who still slam and do things like that, that are, um, that I know are still in progress. But as far as like adults and slamming, I don't even think that's a thing anymore. But I will say that I had a really, um, just a very serendipitous experience mm-hmm. in my time in the slam community. So I, I learned a lot. I gained a lot, particularly, particularly in the way of like the people in the community, mm-hmm. you is, know? Is that how Never. you met, is that how you met Mahogany Brown? That's how I met Mahogany. That's how I met um, Candace Elo, I'm pretty sure. That's how I met really a lot of the people that I'm still in community with today or who I, you know, like that's how I met Hanif. Um, You know what I mean? Like we were on like a pickup team together for a slam that was called Rust Belt. That was like a thing where you could just pick the people you wanted to be on a team with and like pay pay your fees and go perform. Um, That's how I met pretty much every poet I know. And if I didn't meet them directly as like people who were slamming, I met them in some extension of, you know, just being a a poet sort of within that world. Like there's, there's like rungs to the, (laughs) like the poetry (laughs) community, but I met a lot of people sort of through, um, through that time in my life. And I feel like I'm just really blessed. Cause like I said, I wasn't really even present for that experience for a long time Mm -hmm. but I came out with a whole bunch of community so I'm really grateful for that yeah slamming slam life is something else that was something that I I I had no clue and I never heard (laughs) of until Uh one day this girl heard me on stage reading a poem she came and she gave me this flyer I still have this flyer to this day (laughs) and she was like I'm hosting something will you come and that was the very first time I'm like what is this what is this? Yeah. It's like, how does this even work? Because like, when I was younger, like when we first moved to Texas, I had just turned 16. We were, I was, it was like, we moved here like the day before my 16th birthday. And I used to watch, I used to stay up late and watch deaf poetry mm-hmm. all the time. But again, never thinking that I would meet any of these people, that I would be in community with any of the people I saw on the TV. I just was kind of like, wow, like, that's cool. Like, that's like, those are cool people. I want to be a cool person one day, too. But (laughs) whatever. You know what I mean? (laughs) But I never thought that that's how any of that would, like, shake out. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so wild. I, I felt like I was really in a time in my life where, like, things were just manifesting very quickly. And it terrified me because I was like... What's gonna happen when this stops? <laughs> like I was like, what's gonna like I, you know, very like other shoe waiting for the other shoe to drop kind of thing. I was like, you know, why are these things happening to me? Why are people responding to my work this way? Um, and just kind of being like, you know, if this is what things are like now, like what is it, what are what are they gonna be like later or at some other time? I mean, I'm knock on wood, I haven't had that experience yet, but um, I'm still sort of on a ride. It's changed pace, but I feel like, you know, I wrote a book, man. Like, I didn't think that I was going to do that because I was like, I don't even know how. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Sasha Banks is here to stay, y'all. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, knock on wood. That's all I'm going to say. So from, <laughs> you know, from your early beginnings, how how do you write now? How has everything changed? Do you do you, do you write poetry? Like, you know, when it comes, it comes, or do you, do you plan for it? Do you revise your work? Do you come back to it? I, I try to make time for writing. Um, I know 
Jason Reynolds is always like, you know, writers act like they need the moon to be at a certain angle in the sky. (laughs) Incense burning and like candles and shit. But, you know, in order to like write, but he was like, all you have to do (laughs) is show up. You know what I mean? So really I have to, I'm trying to get more discipline at really showing up for that because there are times when I feel like, especially when my life is in like a really tough flux or like I'm in a rough patch and I'm like the last thing I want to do is write about this Mm. you know like the last thing I want to do is like um like uh amplify what I feel Mm. and especially when I'm in it right like maybe maybe later when I'm on the other side of it I can reflect and like amplify those things but I don't want to do it while I'm sitting in it right I'm getting better at doing that and that's hard it's Mm. really hard to do Mm. especially when you're writing poetry um because you don't have a lot of time to, you know what I mean? Like you don't have pages and pages and pages to like dig into the feeling. Mm. You have to get there quickly. And so (laughs) it's just like, um, my process I feel is one where I have to be very intentional. Um, I am absolutely 110,000% somebody who edits as they are writing and Mm. nobody I have ever worked with likes that about me. Nobody likes that about me because I never turn in a draft. I always turn in a final like thing. Um, But I just, I think it's because I'm, it's so hard to explain because I'm trying to explain this to other people who I worked with and they're just like, but why can't you just, it it doesn't have to be perfect. And I'm like, ah, but it does. And I'm just like, I'm, it feels like visuals, like I'm sharpening a knife, like Mm. as I'm trying to use it. And if I can't, it has to be sharp for me to cut the thing I'm trying to cut. So I would rather sharpen it with every, like every jab than to like muddle, like, you know, kind of mar, um, maul the thing up and then be like, well, it wasn't sharp enough. So let me like take some time now to sit over here and like do all of this and then come back and like try again. Right. Like I'd rather the knife be sharpening. Like I, I'm just, I'm always sharpening my knife as I'm doing the, the thing so um I also feel like language is so important to me mm. um as it is for every writer um but I feel like the way that that shows up for me is by always trying to be more precise always trying to craft the visual that I see in my brain exactly as I see it or trying to exact the feeling that I'm trying to create for the other person who's going to read this like if it doesn't feel sharp enough it doesn't feel toothy enough I have to, I, I can't move on to the, I just can't move on to the next line until it feels like it's sharp enough to lead into the next part of the piece or the next word even, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. everything has to feel like it's just getting um, more and more. Um, it's just, it's just about precision mm-hmm. for me. Even the pieces that I don't really particularly care for or feel are my strongest pieces, right? Like, I landed somewhere with them where it felt sharpest. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, it's hard for me to break that habit. And a lot of people don't like that, but. It shows, just... it shows in your work though. Cause like, as you said earlier, like as you know, if you weren't doing this, you would be a sculpt, you would be sculpting and you would be working mm-hmm. with your hands. Cause yeah. you're, you're very detailed. And like, when I read your poetry, I can see them in front of me mm-hmm. and I can mm-hmm. feel it like directly Mm -hmm. it's like we're in conversation even though i don't see you but i see what you're talking what you're telling me it's a magnificent thing so please don't change it okay thank you (laughs) so you know like if you're the only person doing that maybe maybe you were blessed with that because we need to see it we need to see how your mind works and we need to be cut by it so (laughs) yes Keep keep doing it. Don't don't listen Thank to them. You. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, what was it have to be held residency at the legendary Rhode Island Writers Colony? Oh my gosh, that's I'm gonna cry. So that was that was actually a really beautiful experience. Um, I wasn't really sure what I was walking into. It feels like. I don't know if you've ever been on the website or at least maybe a couple of years ago been on seen the website, but it was just very like, um, I don't know. There's not a lot of information really about like how it feels. There's information on what will happen and what to expect, but not really how like it feels. I was not prepared for that. So I just kind of like 
Candace Elo was the person who told me I should apply. And I was like, I don't really have the money to like do this right now. Like I'm in between jobs. Like I can't take off for two weeks. Like two weeks is a long time. Like what am I going to do in Rhode Island? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But Candace was like, look, bitch, if you don't apply, I'm always being threatened by the people I love. We see um, that. <laughs> um, but I I applied and I was so happy that I did. Um because I I've always I'd always wanted to be a part of like a group of writers, you know. Um which I feel it feels internally like that's different from being a part of a community. Mm. It feels closer or like something about it feels like this. I don't know what this word is, but it feels like um, fam- like familial, more familial maybe even. And what I found to be so like immediately different was like nobody was trying to compete with anybody. Mm. Um everybody wanted to help everybody wanted to like no there's none of that like gatekeeping weirdness that was not happening here um everybody was very open about their experiences what they knew their resources people they knew who might be helpful to you and whatever you were trying to do and everybody just was going to let you like kind of use your time the way you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also incredibly scrutinous about who they bring into, into this because they're like, it's a, this is a family, yeah. you know, and we don't, you know, the vibe is just very like, we're curating like a family here. And so we want to bring in people who are not just dope writers, but like, people that we can love on and who are going to love us back, you know? Um, And so it was very hard to leave. Um, I I personally cried from the time I woke up on the last day I was there until like I was dropped off at the airport. (laughs) I cried on the plane. A white woman next to me was like, are you okay? She flagged down the steward person and was like, I think she needs something. Can you help her? And they gave me like a for like a free breakfast and like some headphones. I was so sad. I was like, please don't make me go back to Texas without y'all. Please let me go back at all. Like I was just like, I don't want to leave you guys. Like, let's just stay for another week. Like, what's you know, I just I I was so sad to leave everybody. But what I am so um maybe surprised at or maybe I shouldn't be is how everybody when everybody was like no we're gonna keep in touch they meant that Mm. I hear from all of these people at least a few times a month you know like nobody is so in the stratosphere of their career that you also can't like text them and be like hey what are you doing or like Mm. you said you're gonna call me and you didn't like (laughs) where are you or that kind of thing like they're just people but they're writers still, and they just, I think they just genuinely want to see everybody succeed um, based on what their version of success mm-hmm. is. Nobody's being pushed to do anything. Go ahead. Oh, uh, I was just going to ask, like, how many people are in that space during that time? Oh. Um, so in my cohort, that was like sort of... Um, the last cohort of, of residents, I would say, would, was maybe like, let's see, there was Jive, Jill, <laughs> Alicia, Faja, and me. I really hope I'm not missing anybody, but I don't think that I am. Um, yeah, so there were like five of us if I'm leaving somebody out, I'm going to say there were six of us. And then, um, and then Jason was there with us, um, for the full two weeks. And then we had like an alumni weekend that first week, like all like previous, previous, uh, residents were there and they showed up and we, there was like a reading. So like the new folks 
we had like a reading and they could kind of learn about us and what we do. And then there was like a reading where we got to hear like a more close, like there's a public reading with the new residents and then like a private one with the folks who are from previous, um, previous years. Um, but it's very like familial. There's a matriarch of the whole family named Diane, Miss Diane. She's just a, such a beautiful person that we all are just like, Miss Diane, are you okay? Do you need anything? Are you, what are you doing? Are you okay? Let's have a Zoom call. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I mean, it's a small community. They've been around for a while, but it's a, it's a pretty, it's not like, um, it's not, it doesn't have like a huge just hordes and hordes of cohorts, like somebody, like an institution like Kabe Kanem, mm-hmm. you know, by comparison, just, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's a lot smaller than that, but it, I think that's what keeps it feeling very familial. It's so funny too, because <laughs> I jokingly was like, let's just not bring any more residents in in 2020. Let's just, it be us for another year, you guys. And then nothing happened in 2020. And I was like, I was just kidding. I was joking. <laughs> my friend was like, you're a witch. Stop saying things. Sasha, I was like, did. stop saying stuff you don't mean, Sasha, because it happens. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Sasha so, did it. <laughs> so we didn't bring on any new people because we couldn't, none of us could go anywhere. And then um, this year, you know, we're, we're hoping that maybe we can try to make something happen and it would just be us again. But (laughs) I mean, and let me just say for the record, anybody who wants to apply to the Rhode Island Writers Colony, please do so. I will not begrudge you. (laughs) You you heard it here first. You You can apply. It don't mean you're going to get in. But you can apply. <laughs> I won't side eye you at the at the cookout. I'm not gonna look at you that way. I want you to be here. <laughs> not in your face. Not in your face. <laughs> um so we're getting close to uh the end of, of our, our, our time with you, but there is there are several questions that uh Okay. We, we want to ask, but there is one in particular, and this is, I, I messaged you earlier because I needed to confirm where you, where you currently live. Yes. So I know that you were born and raised in Mississippi. And like you said, you moved to uh, Texas. Um, Actually, oh. I was born in California and oh. raised in Alaska. Well, there we go. And then my family moved. My dad is from Mississippi. I just have very deep roots in Mississippi and spent a lot of time there as a kid. Um, but we moved, I was born in um, California. We moved to Germany. I was raised in Alaska for a very long time. We moved to Ohio and then we moved to Texas. Hey. So never, never lived in Mississippi, but have spent enough time there that my fam- my family that's there would say that basically, yes, I, I do. <laughs> I am from there. My sources. I should have asked that question before. It's I asked okay. That it's okay. It's well, hard. Right? There's it. so many places. Yeah. Alaska. So since you spent a lot of time in in Mississippi, and I guess this question can go to Alaska too, but mainly or Ohio, Mississippi or Ohio, <laughs> um, but specifically Mississippi and Texas. Um, mm-hmm. My question to you is, who has the better barbecue and the better racism. Texas. <laughs> For both? <laughs> I would say that Mississippi's brand of racism is more classic, right? Like they're not, you know, like the town that my dad grew up in was the most, um, and you can actually look this up. I'm not kidding. Like there's no hyperbole when I say Greenwood, Mississippi is the most racially violent city in the country and, and was really at its peak clearly in the sixties, mm. uh, which is where my dad grew up. <clears throat> and so, um, the town that he lives in is that he is from, I should say, is still segregated. Mm. I mean, a lot of, like a lot of cities across the country are segregated still. Yeah. Right. Um, but in more, the more sort of classic ways, um, the only, I would say like the only thing that's missing from Greenwood, Mississippi is like the coloreds only signs and like the whites only signs. Um, but like, the plantation houses are still there and like white people predominantly live in those houses. Um, There are train tracks that people live on either side of. Like it's very, it's sort of the old, like, you know, classic 
American racism 1.0 kind of, you know, thing where Texas is sort of in that place where everybody else is, where it's constantly trying to like reinvent the disguises for its racism and trying to be more covert in this and that. But the barbecue is bomb. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) sorry, Mississippi. (laughs) Texas wins. <laughs> Texas wins again. Yeah. So one question that we ask everybody when they come onto our show, um, we want to know what are your top five? And um, seeing that this is National Poetry Month, if you would like, um, we would like to know what your top five um, poetry books are or writers. Okay. Okay. I'm going to start with Joy Priest, who had a book come out last year as well called Horsepower. Phenomenal, wonderful, great. Also a Southern writer from Kentucky. Um, Patricia Smith, The Blood Dazzler, was a book that really just, I was just like, I want to do the things that she does with her words. Um, Jackie Germain, also wonderful writer and journalist. So I just have to throw that out there because Jackie's like writing for Teen Vogue now. So she's like doing really great things in the world and doing really fancy things. Um, (laughs) Ariana Brown as well, um, who had a book come out last year called Sana Sana that was really beautiful and has another book coming out um, later this year. So everybody gets a back-to-back from her, which is really great. Um, That's four. Let me think of... Oh my goodness. There's so many people and there's so many books. Um, Ooh, goodness gracious. I'm like, I have to make it good. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say, I don't know if this writer has a book or not, but anytime I've come across their work, I'm always blown away. Their name is Aisha Sasha John. And I've never met this person. I don't know anything about them, but I feel like every now and then they kind of just like leave these breadcrumbs of their brilliance. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> Do you get on a podcast person? Like what, where, like, like, I just, I want to know more about you. Like, what are you doing out in the world? You're like, their writing is so, um, it's, it's like what I feel like I'm aspiring to. Mm. And this person is out here doing it, but very unbothered about like visibility and popularity and people knowing who they are or not. And I'm just like, I just want to know, I just want to know where you live and like, what's your favorite color <laughs> and what are you reading? You know what I mean? Like, and, and where are you going to, like, where are you going to be published next? So I would say that would be my number five. Yeah. That's a, that's a good solid list right there. I remember yeah. being able to see Patricia Smith read in person. She had come to Rollins College here in Winter Park, and she's amazing. She's amazing. Yes, yeah. she is. She's so she's she's such an amazing writer, and and like she has like this really thick like storytelling quality, mm. and I love the way that she assembles a lot of her books because they sort of set you up for her to tell you a story about every poem that she's about to lay out for you. And I just think that's so interesting and so smart. You know, I saw her do, um, I saw, I remember a a friend showing me her performance of her poem Skinhead. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, that's when I got obsessed with form. Mm. I was like, oh, you can like, oh, okay. So like the contain, okay. The container and the, oh, Okay, artistry. I see what's happening here. <laughs> All right, Patricia. Got it. You did that. She yeah. did that. Yes. So last but not the least, what is your recipe for your peach cobbler, ma'am? <gasps> oh my god, I can't tell you. Oh, it, is a secret. it is a secret. The only person who knows the recipe now is Jason Reynolds. I sent him everything he needed, already measured, labeled, and packaged up in a box make it with my direction over zoom <laughs> he's the only one he's the only one who knows oh um, wow well, if anyone say, should have it, you it have to him. use fresh peaches and a cast iron skillet 
those are integral parts of the recipe of the magic canned they're not gonna get it it's not the same it's gonna be fresh yeah well i know one thing for sure when this panoramic <laughs> ends we gotta meet up in person <laughs> Yes. We will. We will. I would love that. And uh, we'll bring peaches. We'll bring the peaches, whatever other ingredients cool. that are I'm like the basic with... ones, like butter or whatever. We mm-hmm. can bring that too. Yeah. 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 Word. The skillet. <laughs> the skillet. How many do you need? How Perfect. big it is? I got you, girl. <laughs> I got you. Thank you. Perfect. I'm happy to do it. And is there anything that you want the people to know about what's coming up for you or any books in yes, the work? Uh, I, I am working on book two. It's not a book of poetry. Um, and I'm really excited about um, some like writing that I'm getting to do that is a departure away from from poetry. Just something fun, things that I've been scared to do, um, writing essays and like having them go out into the world. That's kind of scary to me because I'm always like, essays, I don't know, I'm not so strong with them. <laughs> but um, I, I have had an opportunity to do that and I'm really excited about that too. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely be keeping our eyes out for I'm, all of that. I'm still not over that it's not poetry, though. Can I? Can <laughs> I have a moment? But huh? I, I'm like, can I just have a, like a little moment here with my head? <laughs> but I am. I'm looking forward to it because I think it's. If you write this way, I think the writing would be the same. Oh, it'll so be, oh, for sure, it's gonna be not. Not only will it be the same, it will be what it is times a thousand because we know whatever it is that you are putting out into the world is going to be very well edited <laughs> for sure. <laughs> fair, fair and true. Fair and true. Yeah. Your, your editor that you will work with for your book, they'll be like, oh, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, easiest job, <laughs> easiest book. You're so right. I did so. it. She did it all right. I- all right, like, I'm open to edits. I'm open to suggestions. Just know it's already been through a very strict re- re- refining process. Yeah. Yes, there we go. <laughs> well, uh, dear Sasha Banks, thank you so much for coming on to our show. And we hope to have you back again really, really, really soon. And, thank you. Uh, and and be safe. Please so. do. Please do. And on that note. Double mask. Wash your hands. That's what Stay we, away from everybody. That's what we say at the end of every podcast. So we here to say it. Yes! <laughs> We're here. I love it. Yes. It's meant to be. Thank you. That made, <laughs> that made me like, tear up. So I'm like, what? <laughs> she just said it. There, my I mean, drop. you guys are doing it. You guys are, are doers of your word. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And, and thank, thank you guys you for again. having me. We yeah. enjoyed this. This yes. is such a great start to our anniversary um birthday month yes and yes happy anniversary to you i don't think i said that before happy anniversary to you all on your first year um yes year number one so you're one um, yeah since you already uh already uh exit us out we all have to say it's goodbye good day (laughs) all right (laughs) thank you good night sasha thank you so much We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.